0: Welcome back to the historic, we'll call it this week, ATP podcast. I'm Brian Clark. It was an exhilarating night in New York. It was all to play for under the closed roof in Arthur Ashe Stadium. A first Grand Slam title was up for grabs, along with the honor of becoming world number one. That was the prize for Carlos Alcaraz and Caspar Rood. And in the end, it was the 19-year-old from Spain, Carlos Alcaraz, who came out on top. And I am delighted to say that to help me navigate what we've just seen, is our good friend, the former WTA player. I've been working with her throughout this U.S. Open, Jill Krabus. Jill, Carlos Alcaraz, we thought we would see him win a major title. But seeing him hoist the trophy and take over the top ranking at age 19, how do you describe what we saw tonight?
1: Well, I think it was, first of all, absolutely incredible two weeks of tennis. I think it was probably one of the best U.S. Opens that we've seen. We've said that a few times. But to come and witness this final, I really felt honored to be here, to be able to, to watch these two guys play and go for the number one ranking. It was a special moment. And I think, Carlos, it was, it was dead even, but I think in that third set, um, when, if I c- critique the match just a little bit, he started throwing in some servant volleys, started throwing in some variety. And I think after he won that tie break, I don't think Rude played an amazing tie break, but Carlos Alcaraz like, threw in that variety. And I think it just disrupted Rude a little bit. And so Alcaraz just then from that point on felt like he had the momentum. He had control of the match after winning that third set. Rude looked maybe a little bit down on himself because he knew the feat that he had to win two more sets, but Alcaraz just played absolutely phenomenal. I think they were, I think he's still in shock. I l- looked at his face after Chris McKendry said, okay, you're now number one. And I just the look on his face. I think it, he knew it was up for grabs, but after hearing it sp- spoken out loud, I think he was just, he had this wow moment on his face. And then of course, Rude number two. Now I think it's just an incredible moment to witness one and two in the world.
0: Yeah, just for context, we were focusing so much going into this match on, you know, what did Alcaraz have left because of the road that he traveled to get to the final? He had spent 20 hours, 19 minutes on court over six matches. Remember, the Chilich match ended at 2.23 in the morning. The Sinner match ended at 2.50 in the morning. Early night in the semifinals against Tiafoe, uh, that was 11.54 on Friday night. Five hours, 15 minutes, of course, in that epic with Yannick Sinner. We'll talk more about that later in the in the podcast But the big question was, what does he have? And he won that first set, he got the early break, and then almost went kind of, not into cruise control, but just did not really go for that second break. You were thinking there was some energy conservation. He was broken twice deep in the second, so they were even on sets. And then you look at what happened in that third set, and that is really where the match turned, because Rude was broken serving first. Alcaraz held. Alcaraz had a break point for 3-love, and you're thinking, okay, it's... He's going to roll from here. But Rude saved that game and then broke Alcaraz right back. And that's where Carlos seemed just kind of dejected. But he was able to rally himself and get it into a tie break. And that tie break is, is where it really turned. Because Rude began it with an ace and then lost seven points in a row. He had two... You know, really big misses on some kind of routine balls that you thought he might have just missed, just the timing was off. Um, But when Alcaraz wins seven straight points to win that tiebreak, that was a huge step. And the serving display he put on in the fourth set, where he served eight aces in the fourth set. It was a, a service winner to win the title. I mean, that was just a comprehensive way to win the U.S. Open. Grand total time on court, 23 hours, 39 minutes for Carlos Alcaraz,
1: it's it's just insane, and you, I, yeah, it's worth going back to the tiebreak because I do feel like that's where Carlos had that good variety, and I think it really disrupted Rude in that tiebreak, and then that was such an important set to win. I mean, it feels so long to have to win two more sets after you've given so much, and the and the set goes to a tiebreak. But you mentioned I, Carlos is only 19 years old. You mentioned the amount of time that he's played on the court, which is absolutely insane. And I loved his response at the end when he was asked about that, If are you tired yet? And of course he's probably, he said a little bit, and of course, he's, of course he's probably gonna be tired. But I loved his response and he didn't, he's no time to think to be tired. I hadn't, you can't think that way. You can't have time to be tired. And that just keeps you going. You don't even give it a thought and your body just responds. And he was just incredible at letting that continue and go. I mean, it's just amazing playing three five-set matches in a row and coming out here and being able to compete and play and move the way he did in that final was just amazing.
0: Bravo, Carlitos, is what the scoreboard, uh, the big video board in Ash Stadium just off to our right says right now and it was uh, he shattered the previous record for most time on court in the US Open that was Andy Murray who won 10 years ago and spent 21 hours and 51 minutes on court Murray's a nice segue to the runner-up in that Casper Rude last year became the first player since Murray to win titles at the ATP tour in three consecutive weeks of course all on clay Uh, Rude before San Diego last fall had only won on clay clay has been his best service But this was a really impressive performance from Casper Ruud, who is now the number two ranked player in the Pepperstone ATP rankings. And you think about the fact that he entered this tournament as the world number seven, and you're looking at the five who came in here with a chance to take over the top spot. And you're thinking, that's a really outside shot. But he was right there, fought all the way. He's a class act, and I think... You know the the evolution of his game into a well-rounded game yeah clay is his best surface but he looked pretty good on these hard courts
1: he looks great and i think he's proven himself on hard court in particular now getting to the finals here of course at the u.s open he was finals of miami uh, where he d- lost to alcaraz in the final of that event as well but i think he's adapting extremely w- well to all surfaces and if you ask any if you ask quite a few of the other guys on the tour a lot of them have said they're not surprised he got to the finals of the french they're not surprised he's in the finals of the us open and has done well on the hard court as well i mean he's just got that good all around game his forehand He is just rock solid and he can control the points from that side so well. So, I mean, huge credit for him. Two finals of slams this year. That's awesome.
0: And he is now the world number two in those Pepperstone ATP rankings. One more thought on Carlos Alcaraz. We saw it a couple of times in this final. Uh, The drop shot. It worked sometimes. It didn't work other times, but he's not shy about using it and he loves doing it under immense pressure. So our Seb Lozier was able to speak with the now World number one. This was a couple of weeks ago, and he asked him how he does it so consistently.
2: It's tough. It's tough to, to do it uh, well because if uh, you don't hit the drops of very well, I mean, it's uh, too easy ball for the opponent. So, uh, in trying to uh, to see the opponent really. uh, forward of the best line to do the the drop shots and if he reaches the the ball then the lob or the passing is uh, easy for me so uh, it's uh, a good tactic for for me but as you said it's it's, uh, not too easy In terms of how you set it up there are obviously different ways with the big forehand with the kick serve how much do you plan in advance that you're going to hit the drop shot or are you reacting during the point? Uh, sometimes, uh, but this, not too much. I plan the, the drop shots, but uh, usually I just uh, when I feel it, when the ball uh, is coming and uh, I feel it, I do the drop shots with, uh, without the plan in the head. But when you hit a kick serve out wide and then to a drop shot, surely you've then thought about that. How tricky is that when you've just hit a serve to then hit the drop shot? Uh, well, uh, it's uh, it's good because with the, the kick safe, uh, you uh, send the opponent uh, uh, so so far, so far away of the of the court and uh, of course uh, it's better to do to do the drop shot so uh, in that case and uh, if you do that not too well you you have the chance to, to hit the point as well to the opening and for, for, forward. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, well, it's uh, a good trick for me. And we never see you practising the drop shot really when you practise. Is it something that is natural or do you actually practise away from the practice court? It's natural for me. I always uh, hit drop shots when I was a kid. Uh, I would say uh, too much drop shots when I, was, when I was a kid. So in the, in the training, I'm trying to, uh, to don't hit uh, drop shots, to train just uh, um, the, the other shots, you know, and uh, I'm training the, when, when I'm training the sets and, and stuff, when I have breakpoint downs and stuff, uh, I trying to just play the point without the drop shots. And finally, just on this, um, who does it work very well against? What kind of player? And who does it really not work well against, in your experience? Uh, I would say against Sissipas I do a lot of drop shots and almost I win it, uh, every, every point that I hit the, the drop shot. So I would say Sissipas is one of the, the players that the, I hit uh, a lot of drop shots and almost I win every, everyone. And uh, let's see Rafa. Rafa, I mean, it's, it's tough to to win a, a drop shot against him or Djokovic as well. Uh, it's, uh, it's tough. Why? I think they see when I was uh, when I when I'm gonna hit the drop shot He they so they see uh, before I I hit it, and of course he he run before, you know, and uh, he always reached the ball, and he, um, they are very good in. Uh, in that, you know, he hit another uh, drop shot, so he, uh, they win the, the point uh, every time that the, I hit the point, the, the drop shot. So less drop shots against them.
0: Yeah. Back here with Jill Kravis. And Jill, when you're playing under pressure, how much more difficult is it to play a drop shot?
1: It's uh, extremely difficult, and every time he chooses to do it at a big moment, it's nerve-wracking. I mean, you watch him, but his hands are so steady. I think that's the thing that really is just amazing about hitting those drop shots and those pressure moments is how steady his hands are. He's willing to do it. But the fact that he consistently does it almost helps him make him sure of himself in those big moments continuously. And even today f- for the final, he threw in um, serving volleys at big pressure moments too. Sometimes you use it as a surprise tactic. A lot of players do it at a 40 left situation on their serve when they have a little bit of a leeway. But he'll do it and he'll consistently choose these options at big pressure moments, which is just unreal to watch every single time but he trusts himself and that deep level of trust and that deep level of belief is why why he's the champion here
0: and congratulations to the u.s open champion carlos alcaraz for 2022 he becomes the fourth spanish man uh, interesting symmetry here to take over the world number one ranking. He's number one. His coach, Juan Carlos Ferrero is a former world number one. Rafael Nadal, of course, a former world number one. And Rafael Nadal's coach, Carlos Moya. Those are the four men from Spain who have taken over that top spot in the rankings. Uh, big congratulations to everybody here at this U.S. Open. Iga Sviatek won the women's title, so she's now got three majors. Her first on a hard court. Huge congratulations to the men's doubles champion, uh, champion team. Joe Salisbury maintains the world number one ranking. The world number one ranking was also up for grabs in that final. He and Rajiv Ram held off Wesley Kulhoff and Neil Skupsky, who would have taken over uh, the top spot if uh, Skupsky and Kulhoff had won. But Salisbury and Ram, just the second team in history joining the legendary Woodies uh, of Mark Woodford and Todd Woodbridge uh, to win the US Open men's doubles in back-to-back years. And they are now the U.S. Open men's doubles champions. Uh, What does that say? That it's only happened twice that somebody's defended a doubles title here? I
1: know, that's crazy. But I've I've spoken to a lot of the doubles teams. And I think mainly what they've said is there have been a lot of teams that have stuck together in the past. It doesn't seem as much lately. And they think it would be great for a lot of these teams to stay together. And I think Ram and Salisbury, when they first decided to play together, they they stuck with it. And I feel like that makes a big difference because you learn who your partner is both on and off the court. That makes a huge di- difference as far as communication on the court, you know, supporting each other when maybe one isn't playing as well as the other one. So that is so key for a good doubles team. And I think Rahm and Salisbury, you see it so often that they're constantly supporting each other, constantly communicating each other. It's almost like they're reading each other's um, plays and body language and what they're gonna do. So that was great, it was it was awesome. It's, it's really not easy to defend a title either. I mean, I think that's part of the reason because you go into that tournament knowing you were the champion the previous year and it's a whole different kind of nerves and pressure. So that's a big factor as well.
0: Nobody's done it here in the men's singles since Roger Federer 2008 when he won uh, his fifth in a row. And ever since then, there has been a new US Open champion every year. But of course, all the celebrations here at the U.S. Open, and we do have to think about what we saw in that men's doubles final. Uh, The black ribbons, the black armband on Joe Salisbury, the ribbon on the chest of Neil skupski the two British players, because there's been a lot of reflection in the tennis world and the world at large with the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, The tennis community, of course, certainly reflecting the ATP chairman, Andrea Gaudenzi, on Twitter. Uh, He said, and this is his tweet, it is with great sadness that we mark the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. She epitomized grace, poise, and strength throughout her extraordinary reign and leaves behind an indelible legacy. Several of our players were fortunate to meet her over the years. Special memories that will be cherished forever. On behalf of everyone at the ATP, we send our deepest condolences to the Royal Family and to the people of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth. uh, Roger Federer doing the same. His tweet said, in part, her elegance, grace, and loyalty to her duty will live on in history, So that has uh, has certainly been something we're, we're remembering here at this U.S. Open. But Jill's going to stay with me over the next couple of minutes because we are going to dissect the rest of the action uh, that we saw over the past couple of weeks here in New York at this incredible U.S. Open. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, and atptour.com. Back with us here in New York, I'm Brian Clark, joined by former WTA player Jill Kravis. Let's look back on the rest of the U.S. Open, starting with not just maybe the match of the year, but a match we're going to talk about for years and maybe decades to come between Carlos Alcaraz, we've talked about him a lot so far already, and Italy's Yannick Sinner, many suggesting this will become one of the great rivalries over the coming years. Jill, quickly, what impressed you the most? about that match that ended at 2.50 in the morning.
1: Oh, there's a long list, I think, with that match. And I watched live. I was here live watching for about two and a half sets, and I regret every single moment that I left that match. I would have loved to stay till that late in the morning. But I think the biggest thing that stands out for me, obviously, the quickness of both Alcaraz and Sinner. We talk about how quick Alcaraz is. Sinner is so fast as well. The athleticism... I think the biggest thing I would think is the level that they sustained throughout a five hour and 15 minute match was just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, a lot of times we see these matches and then we see one of the players maybe start to fatigue a little bit, show some signs of getting tired, but we didn't see any of that. The level was there the entire match and that is just absolutely incredible.
0: It's good to be young with a 21 year old and a 19 year old on court. But the fact they're 21 and they're 19 and there's so much talent and ability and really history with the two of them has many people wondering as we hear some of the cheering around the grounds here has many people wondering is this going to be the next great rivalry over the co- years to come but what do the players themselves think Ursan Kaderis want to find out
2: yes of course Yannick, uh, Yannick and I will have a good rivalry you know and the, him is gonna is gonna do me better, a better player. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be a, a better player thanks to, to him. I'm going to uh, I'm going to push myself yes. uh, to be to be a better, a better player, you know, uh, to try to beat him. And yeah. uh, I, I, I think for me uh, to him the same. You know, I, I will push him to to be a better player as uh, Djokovic and Rafa and did when they were younger. You know, and uh, of course, it's going to be a, a great rivalry and of uh, course to him out to the court, by phone, I mean, we, we love him a lot. He's a, a nice person and of course he, he has a, a great team uh, around him and uh, of course we, we, we are great, great friends.
3: He had an incredible season till now. He's uh, still very, very young but uh, yeah, he's just uh, yeah, a very nice person, I would say, off-court. You're I think friends? We are, we are friends yeah. uh, off-court and on-court when, when we uh, practice or uh, play against, you know, we try to compete in the best possible way, which I think is uh, very nice to see.
2: And it's nice to see that you're getting on so well. He said, he was just in here, he said that he thinks that you two will have a rivalry, just like Nadal and Federer have in the future, do you mm. see
3: it as that as well? Do you see him as your biggest rival? Well, for sure, um, you know, we are we are young. We, we, we two are young, but we both play incredible tennis. Mm. Um, so let's see in the future what's gonna happen. I hope so, really, because uh, I think when, when we both play against, we, we raise our level uh, to our maximum. Um, but I think you know it's so it's also nice to see when two are getting very good off court um and then on court, you know we we try to take this part really away and then trying to focus uh on ourselves so I mean, I hope so the future will will tell us there are many other players you know who are playing incredible tennis so but yeah uh i I really hope so
2: so how do you think? Physically, you know Carlos is is quite a big guy. I mean, he's absolutely ripped for his age Do you get inspired by that?
3: I think we are mm, We are two different kind of physical, you know Um, For sure he he has grown to his maximum a little bit earlier than I was Um, I think I just finished you know to grow um, because when I went back to to my mom and dad they said okay you uh, you gained some 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 centimeters, so uh, I'm still growing a little bit. But they still say that I don't know. But <laughs> uh, for me, it would be perfect like this now. Yeah. And now we are really working on, uh, you know, trying to be more resistant, uh, having more strength. Um, mm. Which for sure I'm not going to be uh, like Carlos or uh, like another player. You know, I think everyone has his own. Uh, part where he has to work on and as I said, we are working very hard in the gym. We try to improve uh, I Know how many things I still have to improve So we are working really on that trying to be a more complete player in, uh, in every single uh, Part of my game uh, I'm here also with my physical coach, so we will work a lot also off court, you know trying to be to come back from the U.S. swing then we say, okay, we have improved uh, this and that. And um, But for sure, um, talking about results, um, it is confidence, for sure. Um, sometimes when you finish matches and you feel slow, you have to uh, do things to get faster. Sometimes when you don't feel so much strength on the back and the forehand or whatever, you have to work on that. So we are working very hard and then I think I will be uh in know in, in a very good shape already after uh, the US open I think because as I said we will work a, a lot here and and then we see
2: you've got a new coaching team as well and this uh, did it take you a while to find that n- new chemistry and you know finding um, a way to work together
3: uh, for sure in the beginning was not easy uh, we, there were uh, completely different things coming in, into my head different um, yeah words so it's uh in the beginning was a little bit uh tough for me because i was changing a lot uh, in a in a very minimum time Um, but i think i i or we have done a really good job to uh, making things differently but trying to to compete in the best possible way so i think every one of us we uh, we are very professional we try to work in the best possible way and then after you know trying to um, yeah j- just trying to keep going and uh, what we are doing and every one of us knows what I have to improve uh, in each part of my of my body of my game and
0: uh, yeah
3: I think it's, uh, it's a still a long way to go
0: Giulianic Sinner had been something of I don't wanna say an enigma, but he had had so much early success, and I think people forgot that he was just turned 21 years old about a month ago, mainly because of Carlos Alcaraz's arrival. I mean, Sinner still has an incredibly bright future. He beat Alcaraz twice this summer at Wimbledon and then on clay. What have you noticed about Sinner's game? He's now working with the veteran coach in Darren Cahill that has maybe impressed you and, and, and shown you that he is growing as a still young player.
1: I think he looks like he feels more confident out there. I think his serve has gotten a lot better as far as, I mean, he always, always had a good serve, but as far as being able to mix it up, use some more variety, I love that him, he, him as well as Alcaraz are not afraid to come forward and looking to transition forward into the net for two guys that are so young. But I do feel like he's starting to show a little bit more positive emotion out there. And I think uh, you that's an un, understatement overall. I think a lot of people don't realize how much that can go and bring you energy and bring you some confidence on the court. And that's something I noticed a little bit more, especially against the match against Alcaraz. He was fist pumping. He was showing more energy, really looking at his towards his box to show that energy. And I think that makes a, diff, uh, a big difference. So that was great to see from him, more of that emotion out on the court.
0: Apparently, the inspiration for showing all of this positive body language and the fist pumping, because he was a stoic player, as you mentioned. It came from a loss last year in the fall indoors to Francis Tiafo because he noticed Tiafo doing it. Tiafo beat him, and it kind of it certainly bothered him to lose the match but he thought you know what I'm going to start doing that and this segues neatly into our next point and he's going to be one of the other things we remember for a really long time from this U.S. Open and that of course is Francis Tiafo. the run he went on here the first American man into the semifinals since 2006 Andy Roddick that year got to the championship match it's also the first black American man to get to a U.S. Open semifinal since 1972, 50 years ago. That man was Arthur Ashe. Tiafo did it on the stadium named after Ashe. And Chris Bowers was able to speak with his coach, Wayne Ferreira, a few days ago.
4: Wayne, it's been a tremendous journey with Francis Tiafo And I guess it's starting to bear fruit now. Have you been surprised that it's come so quickly or that it's taken so long what, what about this U.S. Open so far has most pleased you? Well, it's been a little bit hard for him because we've actually had
5: a really good summer in the sense that a way that he's played tennis and hasn't really had the results that, that he could have. I mean, he was up, you know, match point, Kyrgios, 4 love against Fritz, you know, things like that. He's, but he's been playing really well. Um, I didn't expect it to happen here this week, but I, I knew there would be a turn somewhere. Uh, just a little bit of more of the belief in himself, though. But, I mean, he's hitting the ball. He's hitting it as best I've ever, I've ever had him. And he's starting to feel a little bit more confident, obviously, by winning some matches and that. So I'm not overly surprised. I just didn't think it would come at the US Open. But, uh, you know, he, he loves it here, and, and this is his place.
4: When we spoke to you in June, you talked about wanting there to be more good days than bad days. Has the ratio improved over the last three months
5: Again, the summer hasn't been that good. Uh, we've had some disappointing days where he's played, re- you know, played really, really well and hasn't won. Um, I'm, I'm say we still have too many disappointing days, but this one has been a successful week. Uh, we will leave here on a huge plus, and we hope we can just take this further on for the next couple ma- couple tournaments and, and through the rest of the year.
4: When you first teamed up with him, there were many of us on the tennis tour who knew both you and Francis who thought this will either be a great success or it'll end within a few months because you're very different personalities. Mm. How much have you and he grown
5: I think uh, just more of my maturity and my age giving him a little bit more insight to to sort of things to go up a little bit um knowing a little bit more about what to do um the finer details of the day-to-day stuff you know he's he's a great athlete and he's very talented and then I don't think he's really had the guidance from somebody to really tell him or show him or have the experience to do it and you know he's eager to learn and and he's been learning really well but it just takes time because he has a lot to learn
4: What sort of things, I mean, you're talking almost like a parent about helping him grow up. What sort of things do you need to help him grow up with?
5: It's pretty much it. I'm looking at him. I've had my two kids that I've taken care of, and and I almost treat him a little bit like my kid in a way, in the sense that you're trying to teach him things that can make him a, a good adult when they grow up. And he is older, he's 24 to some degree, but I mean he's a child at heart in a lot of different ways and he hasn't really learned the the things to make himself a professional tennis player. I mean he's a good man, he's grown up well and he's kind and considerate to everybody and he's a good person. But he he hasn't learned the finer details to be the best tennis player that he can be. And those are the things that I've been helping him on and trying to advise him on and give him things I learned over time and, and, you know, my experience. And and it's been, you know, I still think it will take a little bit more time before he's at his best, though. But uh, we've been doing quite well together.
4: Your eldest son is just a year younger than Francis. Have you actually put some of the parenting experience that you had with your two boys into practice with uh, working with Francis?
5: To, a, to some degree but I'm trying to say stay more specifically just with tennis and tennis related things I mean my older boy does play tennis and I did spend time with him but he wasn't as serious about it as Francis was but obviously I did my parenting and trying to make them grow up to be respectable adults uh, and I'm trying to do that with Francis too but trying to cor- you know correlate a little bit more with tennis and um you know I there's a lot that I've learned from from bringing up two kids Uh, that has helped me with him. I think it would have been a lot more difficult if I hadn't have gone through that experience as well as the experience of being a tennis player that has had success on the tour as well.
4: You talked earlier this year about needing to make him more consistent, that you'd have a good week one week and then the next week he'd play really badly. I feared slightly for him when he beat Nadal because his celebration was so great. It was almost like it was his cup final. He'd he'd won the tournament. How much of an effort was it for you to bring him down to earth to prepare for the Rublev quarterfinal?
5: Yeah, I was actually really impressed with the way he played considering that, that it's always been a big problem for a lot of people that have had that huge success like that to come back out the next day though. And you know, I didn't I didn't discuss too much with him, you know, but I have to say that he did a lot of it himself. And I'm very proud of the maturity that he's actually created and done uh, with that match because I was expecting it to be a lot worse.
4: Because I mean he did pretty much every media request that was done of him, he thoroughly enjoyed himself. Yeah. But did he bring himself down to earth to prepare or did you have to do that? No, he did a lot of it himself, actually. I'm—I I'm, was very, Like
5: I said, I'm very impressed with the way that he's held himself up. He's been very mature. He's done the right thing. I mean, he does like to spend a little bit too much time at the tennis courts and have you know too much interaction with people and the press and everything like that, which can be good and can be bad. But that's part of his personality, and he's always liked that, and he likes that. I have tried to get him you know to get out of the courts as quick as possible, um, but he likes being around here and everything. But most of the stuff that he did was all his own doing he's a pleaser by nature
4: have you had to knock a bit of that out of him or have you just had to channel it
5: oh, I, uh, trying to knock it out but i mean you know it ends up ending up being cha- uh, you know like challenge, like just trying to do as little but i mean he he's his personality you can't change that you know you have to work around the personality you can't change a personality so we're trying but you'll never be able to change him fully
4: and regardless of what happens at the rest of this u.s open you talked about some of the benefits coming actually next year this is still an ongoing project, which just happens to have had a, a good boost. Is that how you see it?
5: Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. It's a good step. I think he's going to learn a lot from this week. He's going to come out of this with a lot of new insights to himself as a person and as a player. And I think it will it will go into as, as he goes forward. I mean, with the summer we've had, he's played good tennis, but he hasn't been able to finish matches here. He's done a great job. We've played five matches. Four of them have been three straight threats. It's, it's something that you he would have felt... Uh, would be n- impossible for him to have done a year ago
4: can you just pick out one of the insights that you think he's learned at the u.s open It's a tough
5: one i think he's learned to be able to come out back you know day in and day out and 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 do do the right thing and be be 100% uh, ready to play
0: Chris Bauer speaking to Francis Tiafo's coach, Wayne Ferreira. Jill Kravis is still with me. And, Jill, just what impressed you the most about the Tiafo run to the semifinals before Alcaraz brought it to an end?
1: You know, I think we've all been very impressed with Tiafo's game. I think Wayne Ferreira has been very impactful overall with Tiafo as far as getting him to – Take responsibility on his own, do things on his own. And it's so important as a tennis player because you out, are out on the court all by yourself. You have to, one of the biggest things is making those decisions because tennis is all about decision making. But I think for me, this tournament in particular, what I noticed is. Tiafoe's all, always had a big power game. He's got the big serve, the big forehand, and he's kind of constructed his points and his matches around those two particular shots. But everything else has improved. His backhand's more solid. He's looking to come into the net more. He's closing um, points out at the net a lot more. And so he's becoming more of an all-around player. And I think he had some tests here. I, I was particularly interested when he played... Diego Schwarzman, one of, that could be a really tough matchup for him as far as game styles. Schwartzman's so consistent, he makes you win the point against him. And Tiafo really stayed strong, he stayed patient. And then to follow that up with one of the biggest wins of his career, obviously against Rafael Nadal, and how he responded after that win, because he was so emotional, some tears were coming out in the court after that, understandably so, and to follow it up with that win against Rublev, because that's one of the hardest things to do. Is being able to come back out in the court after having one of the biggest wins and the emotion and to be able to back it up. And he did that. So for him, it's about that patience and consistency combined that I feel like really stood out to me these two weeks.
0: And that's what impressed me the most, actually, the way he backed up the Nadal win. Right. Uh, Rublev had played some great tennis. I mean, that match he played uh, against Denis Shapovalov yes. was one of the matches of the tournament For before sure. uh, certainly uh, <laughs> Alcaraz and Sinner hooked up. But Rublev was in good form, and the way Francis was able to really just subdue him and clinically move into the semifinal was really impressive. I want to highlight something Wayne Ferreira said, because Wayne Ferreira spoke to the media after that quarterfinal victory over Rublev. And he said the serve, the Tiafo serve, is still something to work on. And he said the goal for percentage-wise, get it from, you know, 50% into the mid-60s or 70s would make a huge difference. Yeah, that sounds great, but
1: how do you make that happen? That, that would make a huge difference. And I think one of the things that Tiafo would benefit a lot from, he's got that huge serve, right? He can serve into the 130s, mid-130s consistently, but that isn't necessarily always the best strategy. You don't. Power is great, but also placement is so important. And I think Tiafo doesn't necessarily always have to go to the huge serve. I think it benefited him in this tournament, especially in the tie breaks. He was 8-0 in tie breaks in this event. And I think he he can show that variety. He can sh- do some kick serves, some slice serves to get that percentage up. And, and that change of pace can always create... Can always create problems as far as rhythm for his opponent. So I don't think it always has to be about power for him, and that will certainly get his percentage up if he mixes in more variety.
0: Something else that was really apparent here, not only on the grounds of the U.S. Open, but really all around the country. Uh, I had friends texting me asking about Tiafo. You know, th- there's been so much made of the American men, the, the the major drought going back to it's going to enter now into. Twenty twenty-three. It has not there's not been a major singles title since Roddick here in two thousand three. And there have been great American men over the years, but some had more personality than others. And I think what we can see here Francis Tiafo has the personality to be a superstar, and you saw it throughout his run to the semifinals. Michelle Obama was here for the semifinals. They showed her on the big screen in Ash Stadium, and you could see, read her lips saying, let's go foe. Um, he's got NBA players in his box. He's close with Bradley Beal of his hometown, Washington Wizards. I mean, if these results follow for Tiafo, he is the kind of personality that can bring tennis back to a point, I think, in this country where it hasn't been in a long time.
1: I think he already is a superstar. He he also got a tweet from LeBron James oh, that, his... that he was very excited about. Yeah, so I think you already see him have that star status. And you said it personally, his personality. He loves the big stage. He loves getting the fans involved. Fans love that. He loves the atmosphere. But I think he's so charismatic as well. He shows his personality out there on the court. His, I heard James Blake said yesterday, which I've said the exact same statement before, that his smile is just infectious. As soon as you see him smile, he makes you smile, he makes you laugh. And it's hard not to like him. Everyone he comes in contact with, the first movie he wants to make, he wants to give you a hug. So he's very relatable and very approachable, and I think you can't help but like that.
0: And I think, uh, to a point, people have speculated that's almost hurt his tennis, because he's such a nice guy, such an outgoing guy, that he likes making people around him happy and to be a great athlete. Sometimes you have to be, maybe you, you have more experience than this, I would imagine you had a hard time being uh, saying no and being a jerk, because you're yeah, a great a person, <laughs> but you have to be be a bit of a jerk.
1: I don't think you have to be a jerk. I think that's the, jerk is strong. the, the wrong okay. way to say it. Yeah, I think you do see players. I mean, I've seen it with Thiago as well as you know, as approachable he is and how much he loves to say hi and always be nice and stuff like that there are moments before a match where he does go within himself all of a sudden he'll get focused you can see okay it's his time to be by himself and i think a lot of players do that and maybe that can be perceived sometimes as not outgoing but that's not the case just players have their own routines and how to prepare for a match how to get ready before they go on the court and so sometimes if you don't know the person necessarily that can be perceived in a certain way but I think because Francis, it, it, it is about finding what works for him. And I think he's had outstanding results. This is, was, has been his most consistent result at a Slam, obviously. And maybe he's found his rhythm and his routine about how to approach a two week event like this. Because it is different than any other tournament. All tournaments are one week besides the Slams. Of course, Indian Wells is 10 days, Miami's 10 days but it's about trying to manage those two weeks and especially a three out of five sets in in Grand Slam events.
0: And balancing the Course. energy of New York City. The players exactly. all stay in Manhattan, so there's the time to get out here to Queens, Flushing Meadows, home of the U.S. Open. Tiafo considered a nice guy, another really nice guy. We are on the money with segways here in this podcast <laughs> today. I feel like I'm the Djokovic of segues. Corinne uh, Hachanov appearing in the very first major semifinal of his career, beaten by Kasparud. Even though he lost, he knows he's got the game to take him all the way to the top.
6: You know I try to be a kind of universal play- player on all surfaces you know and I think I had uh, some results in all of them you know during my career but uh, okay the titles the ones that I won it was on hard court. you know and uh, statistics shows it well um, I think still also we play mostly during the season on hardcourts, which is you have more time to get used to you have more tournaments you have uh, you know, longer preparation in the off season, so uh, That's why I think it, it suits me. Yeah, the, the best I would say, but still I, I love I love to play on clay I, I, I mentioned it many times, you know with my heavy top-spin forehand and everything so I think uh, All surfaces I try to be good at and this is what it has to be to be a top player
1: I know one of your goals is to get back into into the top ten.
6: Yeah, obviously, you know, I set up uh, this goal already last year, but still last year I had my own personal things going on during the clay season, which I basically didn't play well. And, you know, I lost a couple of months, I would say, to get back on track. Also, you know, trying different things with the racket, adjusting, you know, some stuff. So I lost a couple of months last year. So then since the grass courts, since Wimbledon last year, I started to play better and better in the Olympics, Wimbledon quarterfinals. You know, I had better results, let's say, in general. And uh, yeah, this year, you know, the goal is the same. I want to be back in the top ten. I want to to win big tournaments, you know, again. And uh, that's that's the main the main goal. You know, like a motivation, not like a pressure. You know, it's uh, like a motivation that I set up with my team. I believe in myself. So yeah, it's you know, it's a question of I think also time and belief, belief to, to be to be able to do that.
1: Can, can you say between you and your team, what specifically you're working on to be able to get that, that goal of being in the top 10 again?
6: I think to be honest, uh, first thing is obviously I know when I play at my best, you know which, which level I have. So I think the question is that I have this level, so I need to, to do sometimes a little extra. I need to mix up my game a little bit. That's what I started to work on, uh, to add some things you know, in, in, in my arsenal. Uh, at the same time, I think uh, it's, it's a question of uh, being yeah, more, more, more solid in, in some situations, I think, in some matches where, where you have to win, and also how to maintain your best level in the matches that you need to do it. So, you know, against the top guys, obviously. So, you know, all those things you have to put in order to put in place, and uh, that's what I'm doing.
1: And last question just about your coaching team in particular. I know you work with Jose Clave and Vedran Martic, but specifically you said the trust in between you all of you is so important. How how do you get to that level of trust would you say with your two coaches?
6: Yeah, to be honest, you know, Vedran Martic is uh, my let's say my first coach uh, with whom I started since I was 15 years old. So he's a kind of person as a you know almost let's say a family member, is a friend, you know, which I trust 100%, you know, and we stopped for a while during 2020 and 2021. Uh, you know, this year, I'm very happy that uh, he's back with me, back to my team, you know, to to guide me, to help me. And the same with the Jose, with the Jose Clavet. You know, we, we started to work actually just before the pandemic in 2020. Uh, and at that time, he was uh, also part time with uh, Frederick Rosengren, uh, the coach, a uh, very experienced coach. And good, I have also a good relationship with him. Uh, we, we worked during one year and a few months and last year I just continued to work with Jose until the end of the year. I didn't want to uh, to have anybody else, you know, I just trusted him, I wanted to finish the year and then, you know, we basically started back with veteran as well. So now I'm really happy with the current team, the one I have, because both persons, you know, uh, I like them. First of all, for me it's very important to be close and good on a personal level and this is uh, 100% the same with Jose, you know, I don't know him as long as I know a veteran, but I have the same feeling very close, like a a family, like a friend. So with veteran it's yeah, also a question of time. You know, we know each other for so long, and uh, you know, I have whatever it takes, whatever I need, and um, I think they are there for me.
0: Jill, that was you speaking with Karin Hachanov. Do you think it's possible for him to get back into the top 10?
1: Absolutely of course I think he's definitely got the game and the mental strength to get back into the top 10. I think just like anything it's about having that consistency throughout the year but he's had such great wins throughout his career he's been in the top 10 before so he knows what it takes to get there and I think he because of that because you've It's been there before I think he has he has the confidence and he just the belief to be able to get there, but it's just about sustaining that throughout the entire year, just like anybody else to try and get into the top 10.
0: One of the players we're going to be remembering for some time from this summer is Nick Kyrgios and what he did. Of course, that run to the Wimbledon final picked up a title in Washington, DC, won that for the second time, and he came into this US Open as maybe Not be favorite, but certainly somebody considered a contender to win the trophy, fell the quarterfinal stage to Hachanov. And he said afterwards that he felt like he'd let so many people down. I think that was tough to hear just because. Everybody loved watching what Kyrgios did this summer and was that a glimpse, maybe at the amount of pressure that somebody, even like Nick, who at times can put off this air that. He can't be bothered uh, of just. How much he cares?
1: I think I think. Potentially, yes. I think that a lot of players feel that pressure. And Tiafo said it the other night as well on the court um, when he lost to Alcaraz is that he felt like he let his team down. And Patrick McEnroe is great. The first thing he says is, I'm, you didn't let anybody down. Of course you didn't. But it's hard because your team around you, you recognize how much effort they put in to make sure you're ready for your match, you're ready for your tournament, and they spend so much of their time making sure everything is right for you that, I, I mean, I can relate to that. You do feel like part of you wants to play for them and prove and prove everything that, okay, all the work you've put in is worth it, and I want to be able to perform for you, and that can feel like more pressure and more nerves. I, I certainly felt that when I was, because I saw how much my coach and my team put in every day, day in and day out, traveling nonstop around the world to make sure that you can play your best and perform your best. So that that can feel an added pressure. No no coach or team wants you to feel that way, of course, so they support you and they want you to do your best. But I can understand the feeling that both Kyrios and Tiafo what they meant by that.
0: Well, a fascinating one of the many fascinating storylines in the the back end of the year will be the race to Turin and the NITO ATP finals, especially with how kind of off kilter it was with the point situation at Wimbledon. So you've got uh, obviously Djokovic is currently on the outside looking in, but two other players, Italian players, we mentioned Yannick Sinner, he's 13th in the race at the moment. Matteo Berrettini is 14th and you would think Berrettini has a point to prove based on the fact that he was forced to miss Roland Garros and Wimbledon. He won the two grass events leading up to Wimbledon, contracted COVID, couldn't play. uh, Beaten here by Casper Rude. And what did you make of Berrettini at this tournament?
1: I thought this was going to be an amazing tournament for him. I think these courts suit his game exceptionally well. He did have a great run. I think Rude just played exceptionally well in that quarterfinal to beat Berrettini. I don't think Berrettini started off that match very well, especially because I thought he was playing pretty well, leading into the quarterfinal. But Rude is just was just so consistent and started off the match really strong. Obviously, from this point on, it's going to be a huge race to get to the the finals. I was just talking to one of the ATP guys that works for the ATP, and he just feels like all the players going to play be playing everything, especially the Paris Masters one thousand event that's coming up in the in October. And it's going to be a mad rush, I feel like, for everyone just to be able to make that Turin Finals.
0: Berrettini beaten in the quarterfinals. Another player lost in the quarterfinals. Somebody we mentioned a little bit earlier. That's Andre Rublev. And you could really see how emotional he was after that loss to Francis Tiafo. 0 out of 6. Uh, in, in quarterfinals at Majors for Rublev and he told ATP Uncovered that he'd be the first to admit that part of his battle is just to calm the struggle that's going on inside of his own head. There is no mentality.
7: It is almost enemy. I would like to be on court the way I'm outside. <laughs> Basically, most of the things outside the court is not important for me. On, yeah, on the tennis court, I'm completely different
4: of the frustration smashing that racket.
7: When the things are not going my side, I start to show emotions. Uh, Rublev furious. And if I want to be on a better level, this is the next step to be a better player.
0: Well it's a massive moment in the career of Andrei Rublev.
7: This is Andre Rublev and this is my mentality. Every time I go to play final and I'm playing someone that looks like uh, on a paper that I'm a better ranking people they are already putting more pressure on my side that normally I should win you start to feel already double pressure and when you're playing final you feel really nervous even sometimes not a finals uh, I remember first round in Roland Garros against Sam Query when I was losing two sets, two down, and 5-2 in the third, and I couldn't play because I was super tight, and somehow I managed to win a match in five sets.
0: What a battle! Boy, did he have to dig deep tonight!
7: I'm feeling pressure every every time. I'm completely tight when I'm playing, nervous, and I have a lot of doubts. I'm losing confidence as well, but this is part of the sport, not even sport in, in life. In my opinion, it's more you start to accept the pressure because you're still feeling it, but because you support yourself, you're able to play. Pure nerves there from Rublev. I think when you say deal with the pressure, it's to take out the pressure. To take out the pressure it's only when you're already winning so easy and you know that you're going to win the match. So I'm not, I'm not trying to deal with this. I'm just, let it be.
4: What a match for Andre Rublev, he's got it done against Rafael Nadal. It's his first victory over the Spaniards and boy, does he deserve it.
7: I think everything is helping, no matter what. Everything helps a lot because in the end everything is experienced. doesn't matter what happened, to, to use it in the right way. To use all experience even when you do something good to try to analyze what you can learn here to don't relax even if you are disappointed to to analyze how you can use it to take it as a as experience that will improve you I would like to be on court the way I'm outside, because the way I'm outside I'm completely relaxed. It's super tough to make me really pissed. Of course, I can be stressed if I'm late or something. Basically, most of the things outside the court is not important for me, okay. so uh, I'm so easy with them. <laughs> and I would like to be the same way on, on, on a tennis court. On, yeah, on a tennis court I'm completely different. Most of the times when the things are not going my side, when as soon as the one thing goes wrong, I start to show emotions. and doesn't allow me to be on a better level. Yeah, this is like next step for me. If I want to improve, and if I want to be on a better level, this is the next step to, to be a better player.
0: So, Jill he's saying that if he wants to be a better player uh, and reach a better level, the next step is just being more calm on court. He can say that, but how do you go about putting that into action? How do you stay calm and keep your mind
1: quiet on court? Um, A lot of it is about the approach to the match, and I have listened to Rubleb quite a bit, and it seems to be this constant struggle of trying to figure out to calm those nerves, to calm those emotions out in the court. That's definitely a word that he consistently uses. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to actually be able to have that feeling and and settle those feelings inside. I think the biggest thing for Rublev is I'm spec I'm this is my guess as I watch him play that he always feels like he has to play so well to win his matches. And because he goes full force, as you know on everything when he's right. out in the court, he goes full force. And I feel like his game is so good and he's good enough that even if he plays maybe eighty to eighty five percent of his capabilities, he could still win quite a few of those matches. So I feel like for Rublev, it's a matter of accepting the fact that you you may not be playing your best all the time and you're not going to every time, but it's about being okay with that. And I think if he is able to accept that a little bit more and be able to go through those challenging times when he's not playing his best, and I feel like he can accept that a little bit better. And I think the calmness will come more naturally.
0: Funny, this is our second straight week on the podcast where we've talked about Andre Rublev and what's going on between his ears. We spoke about it last week with Chris Bowers, and it goes to show you, I think, the universal thought around tennis is he's such a nice guy. Yeah. He's so talented, but you can tell how much pressure that he puts upon himself, so I think we all hope that...
1: But that's because he says it all the time. And he yeah, does right? say it, exactly. Like we'll say, if i'm feeling good off the court then i'm great on the court and right right
0: well he had a good time we said last week in new york he saw harry styles a couple of times so he had a lot of fun with that uh but quarterfinals at the us open and we'll we'll leave it with this uh here's something to chew on i was talking to uh nick lester about this earlier as we think about our thoughts from these two weeks is this the best us open you can remember i think
1: so i think it might be. i think it is it's i mean so many matches i I mean, I'm, we've seen so many tennis matches, right, in our life, Brian. And I think this is one of the few times that as I'm sitting watching the match, I actually have a, like, <gasps> I'm like, oh, my God. <gasps> I'm actually <laughs> reacting every single time where, because I've seen it so much that I'm like, right. oh, my God, that's a great shot. But I was on the edge of my seat so often these two weeks, three weeks because I was here for qualifying as well. But it was crazy. I, It's just, I think tennis is in such an amazing spot, and it's really exciting.
0: I mean, just look at. Obviously, the champions, uh, we we talk about the doubles a lot, Joe Salisbury, Rajiv Ram. I think what you said is perfect. Tennis is in an amazing spot because we saw it through the generations, the story of the first week soon to be 41 year old Serena Williams in what is very likely her final US Open. So she gave the tournament so much energy from the start. And then that just That's continued true. all the way through championship weekend. The Francis Tiafo run is something nobody in New York is ever going to forget. And then of course, with, you know, two of the brightest young stars in the sport in Carlos Alcaraz, Casper Rude meeting for the title. This is something that I think is going to live on forever. Oh, by the way, you know, full bore with fans and crowds and international travel. It's been
1: awesome. And just
0: the energy that has provided. I don't
1: want it to end. No,
0: I don't either. (laughs) It's like we're in this little bubble here and we're going to miss it, Uh, miss it a whole lot. But fortunately, for all of you good people out there, tennis never ends. And of course that will do it from New York. And so I'm going to have to say thanks to Jill Krabis and all of our contributors over the last two weeks. And yes, the American swing has come to its conclusion. But next week, we'll just pick things up in London. Seb Lozier will handle the reins and will preview the fifth edition of the Laver Cup because it's taking place in London at the O2 Arena. In the meantime, please check out our podcast channel available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. You'll find exclusive one-on-one interviews, including a great chat coming up this Wednesday with the young American talent, Emilio Nava. Remember, he pushed Andy Murray here in the U.S. Open. But until then, I'm Brian Clark. Thanks for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed the tennis.